the stream of time. Hello, and welcome to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your sheltered-in-place host, Elliot the Historian. First, I'd like to apologize in advance for the sound quality of this episode. Like most of the world, this episode is being recorded while sheltered in place and may result in a slight loss in audio quality. Second, I'd like to apologize because last episode I promised that we would continue the story of Alexander the Great. And we will. Next episode. But right now, as this episode is being written, the world is in the middle of a pandemic the likes and scale of which we haven't seen in over 100 years. This is a good opportunity to look at one of the most devastating plagues the world ever experienced, the Black Death, which first hit in 1347 AD and came back on and off over the next three centuries. Now, I'm not trying to scare you. In fact, the point of this episode is to do the opposite of that. By the end of this, it is my hope that you end up with a brighter outlook on the future of the human race and hopefully with a better understanding of your own personal responsibility in the time of a pandemic. First, let's try to paint a picture of 14th century Europe. This period is also known as the Late Middle Ages. If you're trying to picture this period in your mind, this was the era of knights wearing heavy plate armor fighting on heavily armed horses. With a few exceptions, lands and people were ruled by kings, and in some cases, emperors. In the east, the remains of the Eastern Roman Empire, today commonly called the Byzantine Empire, were ruled by a string of emperors going back to the Roman Empire itself. In the west, kings ruled kingdoms, while some kingdoms were part of the larger but somewhat weak Holy Roman Empire. This title is the one that began with Charlemagne's crowning in the year 800. Italy at the time was not a single kingdom, but a series of smaller city-states not unlike the ancient Greek model. Cities such as Florence, Venice, and Genoa had their own areas and economies, and were as often bitter enemies of each other as they were unified. The papacy during this period was stationed in Avignon, and under a heavy French influence. The Viking raids had long before the 14th century stopped, as the Vikings had Christianized and formed their own kingdoms. Even the feared horseback warriors of the Mongols had settled into their own kingdoms by now. This is not to say European kingdoms were in harmony. There was no unified Europe. There was no unified quote-unquote Christendom. While there were many smaller sects of Christianity in Europe in the 14th century, religious belief was firmly divided between Catholic in the West, nominally led by the Pope, and Orthodox Christianity in the East, who didn't recognize the Pope as their spiritual leader. And on occasion, these kingdoms fought each other. For example, the Hundred Years' War between England and France started in 1337, just ten years before the plague hit. The Fourth Crusade in 1204 resulted in a large Christian force conquering and occupying Constantinople, a Christian city. So it's fair to say that Europe in the 14th century was well settled, but not united. In fact, by the 14th century, Europe didn't quite have enough livable spaces for the people who were there. A few centuries of warm weather known as the medieval climate optimum 
helped the population grow faster from the 10th century to the 13th century. Higher population density naturally creates more favorable conditions. And as I said, by the 14th century, Europe was getting close to filling its population capacity. To make matters worse, from 1315 to 1317, Europe experienced bad weather, which led to a series of bad crops, as well as cattle and sheep diseases that led to as much as 80% less sheep and cattle as normal. While lack of food wasn't completely unknown to medieval denizens, a famine of proportions of the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317 was far more impactful than famines that had hit before. Millions died due to this famine. The ones who survived were more often than not much weaker and even more malnourished than usual. Children born during this time would be weaker if they survived. While the Black Death didn't hit till three decades later, there is little doubt that the Great Famine weakened a generation or even generations of the European population, which helped lead the way for the plague to hit even harder. Feudalism was alive and well by now. So whether you were a peasant tied to a manor or the lord of the manor itself, there wasn't a lot of resettling at this point. Of course, this doesn't mean that no one traveled. Because of the settled nature of the various areas, trade was possible and very common. Areas were connected by sea routes and even sometimes land routes. This is important to remember because it was this travel along trade routes that caused the plague to spread so completely. While we are going to see that the plague was contracted from a flea bite, it was ultimately human behavior that spread the plague. I'm not emphasizing this to blame the poor human beings who experienced this horror and were often just trying to escape a situation and possibly hope to save their family. Disease was not well understood, and many of them had no idea what was happening to them and thought it was the end of the world. Like the COVID-19 virus that is currently terrorizing the world, some people who had contracted the Black Plague would have had some time before experiencing any symptoms and assumed they were fine. They'd go out, meet other people, go to other towns, and spread the disease further. Like COVID-19, it was human beings that spread it. Unlike COVID-19, people dealing with the Black Plague didn't have a good understanding of how diseases work. And as we shall see, very much unlike COVID-19, Sheltering in place, if it was even an option during the Middle Ages, would not have necessarily prevented the spread of Black Plague. A pandemic like COVID-19 provides a unique situation where every human has an individual responsibility and opportunity to have a direct effect on the pandemic. By following shelter-in-place guidelines, every person is doing a true, active part in not spreading the disease. On the other hand, Ignoring the shelter-in-place order is an actual public threat, as those who ignore these guidelines could be asymptomatic and spread the disease, or they could contract the disease and pass it on to more people, potentially overloading the hospital system. Before we go further, let's talk about what the plague actually was. Let's talk about the epidemiology of the bubonic plague. The plague was caused by a bacteria, not a virus, that we now call Yersinia pestis, or Y. pestis. The Yersinia comes from the 19th century Swiss scientist who discovered it, Alexander Yersin. With an exception I'll get to in a moment, 
It was typically contracted by an infected flea bite. The bacteria would cause a blockage in the flea's digestive system, causing the flea to constantly think it's hungry. So it would bite a human or animal and keep feeding until it, and I'm sorry, but this is going to be disgusting, until the flea started vomiting blood back into the bite that it had just created. This would generally cause the bubonic form of the plague. The term bubonic comes from large swollen glands that would stick out of infected people called buboes, borrowing from a Greek word. Survival of this form of the plague was probably about 10%, which is to say about 1 in 10 people who contracted the bubonic form of the plague survived. Pneumonic form of the plague was another form that they could contract, and it was possible to get this form of the plague from another human being, perhaps by breathing in droplets that had been coughed out of a plague victim. The pneumonic form of the plague was 100% fatal, and victims usually died within a few days. They could also contract the septicemic form of the plague by a flea bite or by contact with someone who was sick. Again, this was also a 100% fatal form of the plague, and in fact, there are reports of people who were fine with no symptoms in the morning and dead by evening, as the septicemic form seemed to work extremely fast. So where did the plague come from? We aren't sure exactly, but we believe its origins were in Central or East Asia and made their way west on the Silk Road. The Silk Road was a trade route that connected the Far East, such as China, to the West, and while it had seen various versions over the millennia, it still tended to follow roughly the same route. And there was plenty of trade going on between East and West at this time. One interesting factoid that historians have found in just this last decade is that during this period of transmission, it was probably not black rats that were transmitting the disease, as was previously thought. The current belief is that it was gerbils migrating away from unfavorable weather in the east that were carrying the fleas, carrying the disease across the Silk Road. Now, we don't know quite as much detail about the course of the plague in Asia before it made its way west. But estimates are that by the time it first reached the west in Constantinople, it had already killed 25 million people in the East over the 15 years prior. And in fact, we know exactly when and how it ended up in Europe. Traders from the Italian city-state of Genoa did a lot of trade in the Black Sea, and in the 1340s had their own port at the city of Kaffa in the northern Black Sea, modern-day Crimea. In 1345 to 1346, the city fell under siege by a Mongol army led by Johnny Begg, Johnny Begg's army had contracted the disease, which slowed the progress of the siege. The Genoans stuck inside Kaffa held up. Then, in an attempt to terrorize Genoans, the Mongol army started catapulting corpses of soldiers that had died to the plague. Johnny Begg's use of infected corpses was most likely simply a terrorizing tactic, not a calculated attempt at biological warfare but in a sad, ironic twist of fate, it ended up being the most effective biological attack in all of history. And it was also effective in its initial goal. With diseased bodies literally falling on top of them, the Genoan traders packed up and sailed back to Italy. Unfortunately, they carried the plague with them. Their first stop was the city of Constantinople, capital of the waning Byzantine Empire. Plague quickly spread among the Byzantine population, the Emperor John VI Cantacuzenos himself lost his son, 
and wrote an account of the disease that followed the model of Thucydides' description of the plague that affected Athens in the opening years of the Peloponnesian War. From Constantinople, it branched out and spread to Alexandria and Egypt, tragically from a merchant ship trading in slaves in the fall of 1347. From here, it would spread across North Africa. This would not be the last time it would branch out. In October of 1347, 12 of the Genoese galleys arrived in Sicily. The island of Sicily was quickly engulfed in plague. Just a few months later, in January 1348, more of these plague-carrying ships arrived in both Genoa and Venice. At this point, the plague began to have multiple vectors into Europe, often being carried by ships from one port to another. France and Spain infected in 1348. In June 1348, England and Portugal are infected. From 1348 to 1350, followed by Germany, Scotland, and Scandinavia. In 1349, it arrives in the town of Bjergven, Norway, modern-day Bergen. In 1351, it arrives in Russia. And while we don't have many records of cases in Poland, and even against measures taken by the forward-thinking Polish king Casimir the Great, who you might remember from the Stream of Time episode on the history of Poland, modern historians have reason to believe that Poland was also hard hit by the plague. Only Iceland would escape the initial waves of plague, but eventually Iceland would succumb as well in 1401 to devastating effect to its population. It took centuries for Iceland to reach the population it was before the plague hit. Again, I want to emphasize even though one of the primary ways to contract the plague was a bite from a flea, it was still human beings moving from place to place that spread the plague. We have many accounts of the plague from different cities that are often consistent with what we know about avenues of transmission, and it is clear that the plague went along human routes. It was not carried by far-traveling fleas or rats on their own. Some were trying to escape the plague only to carry it with them to another town. Some had nowhere to go, such as a ship that was denied port in Italy that was forced to take port in Marseille, which spread it there. But by 1349, it was all over Europe. Now, this didn't mean every European town and city handled it in the same way. And we'll get to that in a second. But everywhere it hit, it was devastating. Between the years of 1348 and 1351, the population of Europe was cut in half. It's hard to really get your head wrapped around that scale of tragedy. Nobody was unaffected by the plague. Some people lost half the people they knew. Some people lost all the people they knew. In some cases, whole families or even villages were completely wiped out. Even worse, it would often come back in waves, over and over. Sometimes it would be ten or more years without plague, and then it would suddenly hit, some waves affected the young more than the old, wiping out generations and causing yet more tragedy. It came back so often that we generally don't say the Black Death ended until the last outbreak in London in 1666. Although it's worth noting that wouldn't be the last time the world would see outbreaks of the plague, as it hit India in the 19th century, and even today there are localized outbreaks in certain areas, although we have better treatments for it now. Reactions and theories were as mixed then as reactions are today about COVID-19. Although people living in the Middle Ages didn't have the benefit of science and epidemiology that we do and should pay attention to, 
Some medieval theories were astronomical in nature and assumed it was certain alignments of the planets. Some believed it was caused by earthquakes. Some believed it was caused by bad air. These theories were not unlike modern-day conspiracy theories that think COVID-19 is caused by, for example, the construction of 5G cellular networks. Ideas that can be easily disproved, but still took root in populations desperate to understand what had befallen them. Some of the most disgusting theories targeted populations, specifically Jewish populations. One theory had gone around claiming that the plague was caused by Jews poisoning the wells, the kind of vile racism that echoes racism today against Asian people for COVID-19, or calling COVID-19 Chinese virus. Jewish people were persecuted for this, and cities such as Mainz and Cologne expelled the Jewish populations from their cities. And hopefully, it doesn't need to be said that expelling the Jewish population from these cities did nothing to protect them from the plague. The tragedy and psychological effect of the Black Death on the population is incalculable. I can't stress that enough, and I want to give the subject the respect it deserves. People at this time thought the world was literally ending. Without a better understanding of what was going on, contemporary people of the time simply called it the Great Mortality. In fact, the term the Black Death would not show up until 1755, long after the last wave of the Black Death had hit Europe. Towns that hadn't been hit by the plague yet had already heard word of this terrible wave of death heading their way, and could do nothing to stop it. Even sheltering in place, which is highly effective against a disease such as the one we are experiencing now, COVID-19, would do nothing against the Black Plague, since the easiest way to contract the plague was through fleas, and fleas could fairly easily go from house to house, especially when piggybacking on rats. It was terrifying and devastating and ravaging. And yet, and yet some good came out of the plague. Since the plague hit everyone from peasants to aristocracy, it had the effect of evening out the social order. The remaining landowners had fewer people able to work their farms, as a result, wages went up dramatically for the peasant class. Of course, this didn't always happen without a fight, and it didn't always stick, but it put a foothold in the move towards humanism. In fact, humanist philosophies blossomed in the 14th century, especially under the 14th century poet and philosopher Francesco Petrarca, who we know more commonly as Petrarch. He pushed forward the focus on the human, studies of language, and just beautiful use of language in his poetry. His friend Boccaccio wrote in this time, from whom we have the wonderful book of stories known as the Decameron, named for the hundred stories it contains. The framing of this collection of stories? A group of people waiting at the plague in the countryside, telling each other stories to pass the time. If you ask most people if they can name a single work written in Middle English, it would probably be Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. Chaucer was influenced by the Decameron, and his work takes a similar structure, a group of people telling each other stories while waiting out the plague. You could argue that's a tradition that's continued in this very podcast you're listening to right now, especially if you're listening while sheltering in place. The humanist movement would help usher in the Renaissance. The Renaissance opened new avenues of art and eventually even science, I don't want to say that none of this would have happened without the Black Death, but what I am saying is that the way history played out now, 
One can draw lines from the Renaissance and even the scientific revolution back to sparks that were set because of the social upheaval caused by the Black Death, as well as the philosophies that it helped inspire. The plague created crises in faith, which would eventually lead to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. The plague also showed the indomitable human spirit. Within four years of 1348, the population of Europe was halved from about 150 million to about 75 million. To many, it must have looked like the end of the world was here. But humanity survived. Again, it came at great individual cost, and that should not be ignored or forgotten. Now, COVID-19 may not kill in the same numbers that the Black Death did, but we should still take COVID-19 very, very seriously. First of all, every person that dies of COVID-19 that could have been avoided by everyone sheltering in place is a tragedy beyond description. Full stop. No COVID-19 death is worth prematurely reopening the economy, and that ignores the fact that people dying tends to have highly negative effects on the economy anyway. Secondly, as has been stated many times, by not sheltering in place, there is a serious risk of overrunning hospitals, first responders, and healthcare workers. The less people are infected now, the less chance of hospitals getting overrun. And let's be clear, hospitals are already working at capacity, and healthcare workers are getting sick and dying of COVID-19. Third, you could die of COVID-19. Even if you think you won't, you really don't know. It's a disease that we still don't fully understand, and for some people, it truly progresses no matter what is attempted. This episode is dedicated to the heroes during this pandemic. The healthcare workers, the first responders, the grocery store workers, the package delivery people, the essential workers. But I ask, if you're listening to this and you aren't an essential worker, do your part to save a life. Shelter in place, wash your hands, and practice social distancing. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.